Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies Channel. I'm your host, Dora Arusi, the Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. At the American Society Federation, we try to see beyond the Ashkenormative world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today, we're very delighted to speak with Daniel Gross. Dan is a financial journalist and historian. He has covered finance, economics, and business from over 30 countries over the past 30 years. He is the best-selling author of eight books, including The Generations of, Out- of Coming, The Life and Times of a Global Corporation, Bull Run, Wall Street, The Democrats and the New Polit- Politics of Personal Finance, and Forbes' Greatest Business Stories of All Times. Today, we'll be speaking about A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Finance Empire, published by Radius Publishing in 2022. Much like the subject of his book, Edmund J. Safra, Dan traces his heritage back to Aleppo, Syria. Welcome, Dan, and thank you for joining us here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. I do want to state that this book is almost a crossover between a business book and a Jewish studies book. So we're very honored that you agreed to be on the Jewish studies channel. Um, And so with that, I think you're a crossover too a little bit. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your behind writing this book? Um, so there's a slight garble, um, a little bit about myself and why I wrote this book. Yes, please. Okay. So I've been a financial journalist for 30 years. I worked at uh, the New York times. I worked at Newsweek. I was a columnist for slate. Uh, I covered the financial crisis and I had a particular interest in business history because I studied history in uh, both uh, as an undergraduate and a graduate student that, you know, put somebody in a setup to write a book about Edmund Safra's banking career. This is a man who founded four banks on three continents in the second half of the 20th century and was a, essentially a player in the world of global uh, financialization. Uh, the bank he founded in New York, Republic Bank, grew into the 11th largest bank in the U.S. And there are really very few banking countries. So that in and of itself is interesting and there's a connection. <clears throat> The second connection, I think, which is what I think enabled me and really maybe inspired me to do this, was that while Gross is a classic Ashkenazi name, and my dad is a nice Ashkenazi guy from the Bronx, uh, he was an only child. His parents died before I was born. We really had no family on his side. And my family was my mother's uh, family. Um, My mother is a Syrian Jew from Brooklyn. Uh, Our grandparents had names like Nasser and Dweck. We grew up cursing in Arabic, not Yiddish, uh, eating kibbeh and hummus, um, eating rice on Passover. Our grandmother was a sipdaw, not a bubi. Um, that is a very, you know, the Syrian community is very cohesive. Even though I grew up in Michigan, we were always visiting our, our family. Each of my grandparents had eight or nine brothers or sisters. They all lived in Brooklyn. And when in summer, they were in Deal. And now in the, in the winter, they're in Aventura. So I know this world even as a kind of slight bit of an outsider because I'm in um, I guess the product of what they would consider an intermarriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that combination of those two things, being someone who writes narratives, as I always say, there's a, you had a Venn diagram of people who can construct narratives about 20th century global finance and people whose 
great grandparents were born in Aleppo, there's really only one person in the middle and that was me. And so it was very, you know, fortuitous. I've spent a lot of my career looking for stories, reporting, traveling, observing, and sometimes a story kind of finds you right where you are. And that was the case here. A colleague had contacted me and said, you know, do you know who Edmund Safra is? And I was like, of course I do. You know, in our world, he's a, a big personality. Um, and they told me that the foundation, which he left behind when he died in 1999, had not only this incredible archive of all his papers, uh, letters, documents going back to the 30s in seven different languages, but also transcripts of interviews that had been conducted with hundreds of people who knew him when he was a child in Beirut, when he was a teenager in Europe, when he was in his 20s in Brazil, people from you know, Jacob Rothschild to sort of relatively anonymous people who you know, knew him in, in Beirut and worked for his bank. So you had this like two sets of uh, sort of primary archival material. And the way I compared it is like, it's like dumping a jigsaw puzzle with 2000 pieces out on a table there's a story there, but you have to know how the pieces interconnect. So the, you, know, you got to understand the banking story and why he was interested in trade finance and why gold traded here, but not there. But you got to understand why, you know, his license plate always ended in 5555. Or why he always wanted to do a deal on Tuesday, because on Tuesday in, in Bereshit, God said and saw that it was good twice. Or he preferred to do deals on the 18th of the month. Um, the person he was that informed his style of banking and his philanthropy is directly traced to him being uh, you know, a Halabi Jew, which is a Jew from Aleppo, um, even though he was born in Beirut and spent very little time in Aleppo. So let's unpack what you just said a little bit, take a step back. Um, so first of all, I have to tell you, even though this is a podcast, I think the visuals are absolutely amazing. The concept of the Venn diagram that you just described, I think is just perfect um, that you have this um, one person in the middle between the Syrian and the business. Um, although many Syrians are business people. Um, so I wanted to, you mentioned a few things in there that I just want to make sure everybody understands. You said 555. Can you explain that a little bit? Five is the Hamsa, which everyone sees this, you know, you know, the sign from jewelry. Uh, it's a symbol of, kind of good luck, good fortune uh, in the Middle East, stretching probably from Morocco all the way to Iran. And it's you know, sometimes just sort of uttering the word Hamsa means like, you know, God should protect us, right? Right, which is the number five, Hamsa, Hamish. Yeah. Um, and uh, you also said the number 18. So I just want to make sure we're on, everybody right. is on the same 18, page. 18, of course, the... Uh, symbolizes chai. It's the numerical value of the letters that, that spell out chai or life in Hebrew. So it's a very important uh, numerical figure in Judaism. And I think you can also use the Venn diagram for that too. That's kind of where his business numbers and his Jewish numbers come together and right. they have this uh, overlap. So um, I, I really love that. And he very much is in both those worlds. Um, so we're going to talk about this, but before we get into that, I want to start with uh, the dedication in the book. And you write for the remarkable, resilient, and vibrant communities of Syria and Lebanon. Um, how did you come up with that dedication, or did the foundation come up with that? No, I, I came up with that. Um, part of it's because, you know, in Edmund Safra's life, he lived from 1932 to 1999, he was born in Beirut to a father and mother who had been born in, and grew up in Aleppo, but moved to Beirut in the 1920s. He went first to Europe and then Brazil 
and Switzerland and New York, where he put part of his family and there were communities there everywhere. And the story of his life is really the story of the diaspora of the um, Syrian and Lebanese Jewish communities. You know, to be a Jew in the 20th century was to know displacement, wherever you were. Um, we know the story of Europe in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, in the Middle East, it was a little different. Uh, my own grandparents, great-grandparents left Syria. There was a wave of immigration in the 19-teens, the 1920s, they came to the U.S. But plenty stayed, uh, not just there, but in Egypt and everywhere else in, in North Africa. And it wasn't until the 40s, 50s, and 60s that the diasporas had to fully leave. And there were, there were Jews in Syria until 1994 and Jews in Lebanon until um, the 1980s. And a large, uh, Lebanon was the only Arab country where the Jewish population actually increased after the foundation of Israel. In Iraq, there were pogroms in Yemen, you had an airlift in Syria, there were pogroms. Things were kind of pretty chill in Beirut through the 40s and the 50s. And a lot of the Syrian Jews themselves went to Beirut. Um, and the, the, the Beirut Jewish community was in large measure a Syrian Jewish community. Excellent. So I'm not gonna go page by page here, but there are a few things I just wanted to touch upon. So I'm gonna read another one from you just because you're much more eloquent than I am anyway. Um, in the, the opening paragraph you say, and I'm gonna read a little bit here, on Thursday, November 13th, 1947, and I just wanna put out there that this was just 26 days before the partition plan of Palestine was announced by the UN. Edmund Safra made his way to Lode Field, the small airport a few miles from the sands of Tel Aviv in mandatory Palestine. The 15-year-old Beirut native had made the 130-mile journey overland from his hometown. The only flight serving this, his destination, Milan, directly from Beirut, left on Saturday. And Edmund Safra, Safra an observant Jew, didn't travel on Shabbat. And I think this was just to set the whole stage for the whole book and his whole life um, to me is very significant. But can you tell me a little bit about the journey and the significance? Yeah, well, there's a lot going on there. One, he was 15, right. which speaks to the precociousness. I mean, it was not uncommon for people to go to work when they were 15 or 16. He went to, you know, the Allianz School, which was the sort of French-speaking network of Jewish schools that they've had in Beirut and Alexandria and everywhere. And you essentially got your baccalaureate kind of degree when you were 14 or 15. That was not uncommon. What was uncommon is that his father tapped him uh, to say, you know, things are looking a little uncertain here. We need a beachhead in Europe. I want you to go to Milan and start seeing what you can do there. He sent him with a 19-year-old chaperone. Um, but these were kids, right, operating in the world of adults. So that is something to his sort of character and uh, his precociousness. The second is the idea that you could just drive from Beirut to what was then Tel Aviv. And again, the Safras originated in Aleppo uh, in the Ottoman Empire, where it was something of an integrated whole. And in fact, at one point in the 1870s, the Safra brothers, they called themselves the Safra Frere. They had a you know, Safra brothers in French. And they were like a mini Rothschilds. One brother went to Istanbul, one brother went to Alexandria, one brother went to Beirut, and they were trading with each other. And in a world where the Ottoman Empire existed, that made all the sense in the world. After World War I, when Middle East starts to get broken up, it doesn't make any sense anymore. That's why they sort of dissolved their firm and Jacob Safra and his father went to Beirut. But you could still at the time in the 40s, get in your car and drive from Beirut to Tel Aviv. It was a, in effect, there was a certain amount of 
integration. And of course, yes, the Judaism and the practice of Judaism dictated the rhythm of his life. He was going to go at the age of 15 and be fully integrated into the most modern banking networks. But certainly at that age, he was not going to fly on Shabbat. Um, and so, like you said, there's just so much in that opening. And I think that helps give us a little bit of a view into who we're talking about here and all the different levels. And also, I think it um, talks about he wasn't the oldest, right? Yes. And he had an older brother who was several years older. And again, traditionally in these families, it's the oldest brother who is tapped to lead the next generation. Uh, then in this instance, it's because a combination of sort of, yeah, so his father, you know, saw him as a savant and someone who was capable. Um, and the older brother wanted to sort of go off on his own. And so in this instance, it was the second oldest son who was sent to be the representative of the family. Um, and I think that also speaks to how the rest of his life, although he very much was part of the Syrian community, he didn't do the typical straight line of getting married to somebody within the community and uh, at a relatively young age and having the progeny of the next generation. Um, but let, let's go back for a minute. And you talked a little bit about his father and his grandfather, but he was kind of born into the life of banking. Can you tell us a little bit about his family and the community? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, in these worlds, every business was a family business. Um, your name was often your trade, like just like in the, you know, in England, you have people named Smith and Cooper because of what those people did for a living. In this world, you would have people named Dabach, which is a, you know, like a, a slaughterer or, you know, people had names that signified what it was they did. The Saffers had been bankers for generations. So it was sort of predetermined that that was the world that he was going to go into. And they had already begun it there. Can you talk a little bit about the their banking community there? Yeah, so they, they had been sort of money changers and financiers in Aleppo, but we start to see them on paper in the 1880s as Safra Frere, as I mentioned before. And then Edmund's father, Jacob, moves to Beirut in 1920 and starts a, it was Bank, Bank Jacob's Safra. Uh, he started in 1920 that ultimately evolved into an institution called Banque de Credit Nationale, um, you know, an official bank in Lebanon. That bank still exists. And in fact, if you look at the, Edmund actually owned that bank for his entire life through the Civil War, through the Israeli occupation, somehow managed to operate a Jewish-owned bank in Beirut through the 90s until the day of his death. That bank still exists. And when you go to the website, um, it says this bank was founded by Jacob Safra. It is a remnant, in a way, of a time in Beirut when it was this cosmopolitan, um, multi-confessional city where there was a, an entente, where every community was sort of represented, accepted, including the Jewish community. So still today on the website, it says? It says that this bank was founded by Jacob Safra. Yes, they have not erased the heritage. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about uh, the Alliance and his education. And we, you also mentioned that he left at 15. So obviously he didn't have a full education. He didn't have a college education, obviously. And uh, the way you put it is, or uh, on his words, in his words, you put it in the book that he built an empire based on the book of banking that was written 6,000 years ago. So we have the Alliance as kind of a basic, we have the Torah or the, um, the Jewish world. And that's kind of an education in and of itself. Can you talk about that a little bit, his education? 
Yeah, a couple of things. Well, you know, it's a line like everything I needed to, to, to learn, I, I learned in kindergarten. There is an element of that, right? Where that he was born into this world that what, you know, banking became a very complex international business, but he always felt it was more of a simple business because he had certain practices or theories that he got from his father and his grandfather. Um, interestingly, you know, I've done a bunch of events, uh, particularly at um, in sort of uh, Syrian synagogues in Brooklyn and in uh, in New York and in Israel. And I try to go through a thing like, you know, how many people are in this room knew Edmund Safra? How many people worked at his bank? And then how many people here were born in Aleppo? And then, you know, how many people here went to school with him in the, at the Alliance? And of course, at the event in Brooklyn, you know, five or six hands shot up, including people who sat with him in second grade and that the teacher said that, you know, he was a poor student, would never amount to anything. So as much as this is history, this is still... Uh, this world is still very much uh, with us. But yes, he believed you know, that banking was his heritage, um, that the lessons that his father taught, and he had a certain shtick that he would do when, later in life when he was like a billionaire and he would very rarely give interviews and he would put on this, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, all these people with this complicated stuff, I just do the basics, you know, you make a dollar a day, but make sure you make a dollar a day. And his father had a line about, you know, if you're going to set your ship on the seas of banking, make sure that it's strong enough to survive a storm. Um, underneath that simplicity was a very sophisticated mind capable of doing arbitrage in his mind and harnessing technology uh, to the fullest in his day uh, and truly operating on a, in a global scale. So yes, he would tell you that his um, you know, father would take him to the shook in Beirut and, and send him around to see how many bolts of cloth the guy had and to make sure that the kids, you know, their family's hands were clean. Um, that sort of folk wisdom, right? But he applied it to this sort of truly global, you know, enterprise that where he was rubbing shoulders with the Rockefellers and Goldman Sachs and everybody else. Okay, so we've kind of touched upon it, but now I want to make sure that everybody understands the expanse of the empire that he built. Um, so, you know, we talk about this simple, simple in quotes, person from um, Lebanon or from Aleppo, but can you explain just, I don't yeah. want him to become a business. And this is why, you know, they said he was, he was an immigrant. He was not a refugee. And, you know, when he showed up in Milan, there was a substantial amount of money in bank accounts there for him. And there was a crew of a half dozen people from Aleppo who were there who we already knew. He spent three or four years going around Europe buying gold. Gold doesn't trade in Europe in the 1940s. It's a fixed price. But the Safras knew people in Kuwait and India and Hong Kong who would trade it in the local market. So he's going around to banks and buying gold and sending it through his father. Uh, in 1952, there is a, a bomb at the uh, Allianz School. The Safra's family apartment in Beirut is ransacked. They decide we have to leave Beirut, although they keep the bank. Europe was not a place that wanted to take people. The U.S. was sort of also not available to just come to. So they went to Brazil at Edmund's instigation. So he was 22, tells the family we're moving to Brazil. It's 1954. There are probably 50 or 60 Syrian Jews there. Uh, and within a few years, he has set up a series of trading operations, trading coffee to New York, uh, bringing in industrial machinery from uh, Eastern Europe. There are barter arrangements. Because he was a Brazilian citizen, he couldn't formally own a bank, but he sets up financing operations. 
you would think that would be enough for your basic immigrant, but he's traveling this whole time. In 1959, he starts a bank in Geneva called Trade Development Bank. And that's a classic Swiss bank, you know, it's where rich people put their money to be protected. And many of his first customers were people from Beirut, Lebanon, Egypt, who were leaving. Okay, so now he's got a bank in Beirut, Brazil, Geneva, that should be enough. He tells his nephew, who's in Brazil, who's deciding, should I go to New York? He said, look, you can stay in Brazil, or you can come to New York and meet David Rockefeller. And that's what Edlin wanted to do. He wanted to be, he viewed himself as in that rank. So in 1964, he comes to New York and he starts Republic Bank as a startup with $5 million. This bank grows into the 11th largest bank in the United States. In 1982, he sells his Swiss bank to American Express. Five years later, he starts another bank in Switzerland called Safra Republic. That also grows into a very large enterprise. So, you know, when I say global financial empire, there are actually these banks. And meanwhile, his younger brothers, who he had sort of set up in business at first in Brazil, they were building their own bank called Banco Safra, which they owned, which itself emerged into like the fourth or fifth biggest bank in Brazil. Um, so it was truly this global sort of family of banks, even though they weren't under the same ownership. Uh, and he spent his life kind of rotating between these poles. He had homes in New York in London, in Paris, in Monaco, in the south of France, and would spend you know a month here, a month there. Um, that was the, you know, it was a really unique kind of setup for a business person. And, and he ran them almost like family businesses. I mean, you mentioned his brothers, you mentioned his nephew. Um, it was a real so mixture, right? So they, um, yes, he spoke with his brothers every day, his nephews, cousins, there was a you know, branch of the Safra family that had gone to Alexandria. Their descendants worked for him. Um, and it went beyond that. Uh, when people were coming out of Lebanon or Damascus or Aleppo and they're showing up in Argentina or Brazil or New York and they needed a job, they went to see Edmund Safra and he would give people jobs. So he was running these banks. They were publicly held like any other bank, but um, you know, some people used to refer to it as the candy store because you would look and there would be like, 10 Hararis or 10 people with the same last name because people were bringing their family members into work there. And those were the people he trusted. In every place he went, he hired sort of prominent locals to be on the board or the face or the establishment because in Switzerland, you needed some Swiss people. In New York, you needed a good New York lawyer and a good New York accountant. But the people he trusted, the people who were actually doing a lot of the work were always Syrians and usually Halabis. And, um... I think bringing his home and the family into it is really represented with his apartment above the Republic Bank. And to me, that's just a, another great yeah, well, yeah, A lot of people live above the store, but if you're ever in New York, <laughs> right adjacent to the New York Public Library on the corner of, I think, 40th Street and Fifth Avenue, there's this beautiful Beaux-Arts 12-story building, which he bought in 1963 for about $3 million. And on the base, he opened Republic Bank. And at the top of the penthouse, he lived there for several years. And that shows the crossover between the two. And he'd have meetings up there, but he'd also entertain. That's right. Um, so I think this really is um, represented when you discuss uh, John Chamberlain's, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, um, his re re recollection that Safra called his senior managers to Geneva and said they had to cut expenses. And then the reaction was people raised their hand and offered to give up five or 10% of their salaries. It shows that 
his connection and the family that became. <laughs> um, yeah, was someone also compared that to like a, a UJA drive where instead of doing the classic <laughs> thing where you would hire a consultant and figure out, you know, we'll cut five, these costs here. It was basically telling everybody, yeah, I'll give this much, I'll give this much. In the end, they ended up having to uh, engage a consultant to, to cut people. And, you know, this is the thing that is par for the course at large American corporations. They'll do it every two or three years without blinking an eye. And for him, when they did this at Republic Bank in the 90s, it was agonizing. And he would sit there and go through every person and say, you know, a 70-year-old guy who had worked there for 40 years, he was like, no, I'll leave before he goes. So there was a, like a real sort of bargaining around that. And again, I think it shows this persistent, you know, there's this temptation to sit. Someone had said that he had a sort of 19th century mind, but working in the 20th century. Um, the approach he had to banking, it was, and this is what I would say, sort of Syrian Jews in general. They acculturate, but don't assimilate. So thoroughly modern in the way he did business, but also clinging to tradition and a mentality that's not just 19th century, that's, you know, 16th, 15th, 14th century. Uh, and the idea that, yes, you would just fire 30% of your staff because your profits were down this year, that was alien to him. It's just very warming. I don't know. It's somehow, yeah, a lost world, I guess. Even though it wasn't that long ago, it just seems like yes. this lost world. He, he maintained it for quite much longer than other people. Um, so he was a private man. He didn't like to share everything, but let's get a little into his personal life. Like we mentioned before, he didn't go the typical route of getting married young and get marrying within the community. Um, tell us a little bit about his personal life and his and his wife. <laughs> yeah, so he, you know, like I said, his life was really, and it, it, it's in the documents where you're tra tracking his travel and his calendar. He would be in New York for two months and then go to Brazil for Passover. Then in the summer, he would be in the south of France. And then in the fall, he would be in Geneva. And then he'd be in Paris calling on clients. And he felt that, you know, that setup was not appropriate for a family with a wife and, and children. Yes, the standard MO for someone in that community was like in your late 20s, you would marry a woman who was 18 or 19 and you would have five or six children. And then that becomes the, um, you know, the boys will go into the business and work with you. Uh, he got married much later in life at uh, the age of 42 to Lily Safra, who was not uh, Syrian. She was a Jewish woman from uh, Brazil. She had been married before and had her own children. So they weren't going to have their own biological children, although he was very much a sort of father and, and grandfather to Lily's children and uh, grandchildren. So I would say that is one of the ways he departed from the norms of his community. Um, part of it was because of just his, his approach to work and this uh, somewhat, I don't want to say nomadic, because he was always moving from places that he owned to places that he owned. It's just like, you know, people we know might have a beach house somewhere and go there. He essentially had five or six different houses and would kind of rotate in between them. And when he settled down, he settled down with a partner. I mean, I love the scene where you say that when they did get married and the civil wedding, at the civil wedding, the official read that the husband is the head of the marital union and Lily just laughed. Yeah, well, Lily, when, you know, Lily Safra um, was wealthy in her own right before they got married. Um, and she had a, uh, Edmund liked to collect, you know, watches and uh, antique furniture she liked to collect, you know, modern art and paintings. And so their incredible art collection that they built up was sort of her doing. Um, 
And they did sort of work together, not in the sense that she was making uh, decisions about credit or who to lend to, but you know, one of the Republic's big events, every two years, the IMF and the World Bank would have their annual meetings in Washington. This was the place where the Safra network came together, you know, Venezuelan central bankers and CEOs from the Philippines. And they would put on a reception usually at one of the Smithsonian um, buildings for 3,000 people. Edmund would be there with his brothers and there would be senators and all their customers and all their clients. And basically, Lily Safra was the one who sort of put on and staged that, I don't want to say show, but that event, which became a kind of cornerstone of, of the bank strategy. And so if we're talking about events, let's go to the ribbon cutting of Republic Bank. I know we're skipping a, a little bit from back and forth, but I'm picking up on keywords here, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, and at the, at, at the initial ribbon cutting, the slogan was a new bank, nearly a century old. And I think that plays into the whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about the ribbon cutting in this initial yeah, strategy? So he, you know, he comes to New York and you know, it's a very different type of banking. New York is middle-class, consumer banking, right? The savers, modest savers in Queens, Brooklyn, Jews, Syrian Jews, opening checking accounts and banking accounts. This was not the type of banking he was doing in Lebanon or in Switzerland. Um, and the ribbon cutting, you know, there's a photo of it. And the reason it's compelling is because uh, Senator Robert F. Kennedy shows up. And Edmund Safford, what he thought about America was that, you know, how amazingly open it was that a guy could come in who was not a citizen, open a bank, and the senator from New York, who was the you know, brother of the, the late president, would show up to your groundbreaking. Um, and so that was the opening of Republic Bank. And again, you know, his ability, he spoke seven languages. What he showed, what he showed in his life is that he, when he went somewhere, he went right to the center of the action and was able to function in whatever the local climate and context was. And the con context in New York in the 60s was, Madmen, bustling, striving, middle-class consumers, marketing. You know, they didn't do marketing and advertising in Beirut or Switzerland, right? There's, there was a sort of anti that. Um, their big innovation was in the late 60s, you know, if you came in to open a bank account, the most I could give you was a $10 gift, a toaster or something like that. That was the regulations. And so it was tough to, like, recruit new customers. Why would they come put a deposit with me? someone realized that while there was that limit, if you draw, brought in somebody, your friend, and your friend opened an account with me, there was no limit to the gift I could give you. And so they decided they would give black and white TVs, which at the time were worth three or $400, to people who would bring in their friends to open accounts. Within a few weeks, there were lines around the corner. There was a, apparently a woman named Ida Schwartz in Brooklyn who ended up with 25 televisions because she referred <laughs> to so many people. Uh, and, and for a certain generation, people refer to Republic as the television bank. But to me, that's indicative of how, you know, everywhere he went, he understand the different commercial culture in which he was operating and adapt to it and succeed in it. I think it's a brilliant workarounds that he's able to see. And sometimes you don't have that when you have your formal education. I think part of that that's might right. be here real world experience, <laughs> old world and new world. Um, so we have to at least mention um, the American Express affair because it was out there. So I don't want to dwell on it too much, but why, why am I calling it an affair? And can you just mention at least so we- Sure, I mean, you know, the, what I tell people about 
this book and Emmett Saffer's life is that a lot of people know how he was attacked. A lot yeah. of people know how he died. He died in 1999, and there were articles written about it in Vanity Fair. There was a fire set in his apartment. But nobody knows how he lived or what he really did. Right. Unfortunately, um, we know more of the controversy than we know him, but I still think we need to mention it. And because this affair with American Express, which was sort of a year in his life, there's an entire 500-page book right. written called Vendetta by Brian Burrow. Brian Burrow is one of the authors of Barbarians at the Gate and one of the premier business journalists of our or any era. So it's out there in full detail. In a nutshell, in 1982, he sells his Swiss bank to American Express. Uh, American Express wanted a private bank, so they, they buy Edmund Safford's bank, and Edmund's supposed to kind of go work for them for a few years. And if you knew you know, the way Edmund was sort of treated as an aristocrat in his own firm, the idea that he was going to slot into a matrix organization with a bunch of MBAs was sort of absurd. He joins American Express's board. They have a falling out. Things aren't going well. He leaves in 83, 84, sells his American Express stock. It's very clear that he has a five-year non-compete. So in 1988, he would be permitted to open his own bank in Switzerland. And it was very clear he was going to do that. Uh, and American Express fear was that all his old, all his old <laughs> Sephardi clients would immediately walk across the street and go to him. Uh, they tried to sort of stop him in the Swiss courts. That didn't succeed. Uh, and then in the summer of 1988, these articles start appearing in the press in Peru, in Switzerland, in France, saying Edmund Safford's a drug dealer. He's involved with the Medellin cartel. He's involved with Iran-Contra, none of which was true. Um, and, you know, the libel uh, defamation laws are very different in Europe than they are in the U.S. So he starts suing the people to sort of retract the information. And he wants to get to the bottom of this. He immediately suspected that American Express was behind this and people thought he was crazy because why would a blue chip company engage in such behavior? Uh, but two things happened. And this is all documented in Brian Burrow's book um, during sort of like the discovery phase of one of the trials, the defense turns over some documents about the dossier of all this information about Edmund Safra. And it says on the facts that it came from an American Express office in London. And secondarily, he had hired private investigators. They heard a name of a guy who was allegedly spreading these rumors, Tony Greco. They lived on Staten Island. They tail him. He goes to the American Express offices and has lunch with a woman who they identify as American Express executive. So they have this evidence. They confront American Express. Um, the company apologizes and agrees to give $8 million to charities that were named by Edmund Safra. Um, you know, official stories that it was a sort of a couple of rogue employees at American Express who did this, you know, without knowledge from certain higher ups. So it's a very, you know, again, I would encourage people to go read Vendetta because it tells it in really cinematic detail. But this was just one year in his life. But it was an intense year. And I, the, one of the things I want to focus on just for a moment is that he was so adamant about clearing his name. I mean, other people might just have said, okay, so what? You know, it's not going to affect his business too much. He wanted to make sure that this his name was cleared and the fact that he wasn't compensated personally. I mean, you kind of said it, but right. you could repeat that, please. He didn't take any money for it. He didn't want right. Yeah, he could have sued them and, and got a big settlement. Um, you know, and again, this goes back to where he came from, right? And the concept of the Shem Tov. But it, 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 it's a combination of your name and your family honor, but also in the financial world, 
in a world where you don't have central banks and you don't have deposit insurance, all you have is your name. And the word credit, you know, comes from Latin meaning faith or belief. Like if somebody doesn't trust you, they're not going to leave their money with you. And if you don't trust someone, you're not going to lend them money. So it was very, you know, the, the fact that his name be beyond reproach was very important to him, especially because wherever he went, he was an outsider. In Brazil, he was Lebanese. In New York, he was Brazilian. In, in you know, Switzerland, he was a Jew. And, and among Jews, he was a Sephardic Jew. Like wherever he was, he was the outsider. And, and hence, you know, because of human nature, um, an object of suspicion. He spoke with an accent. They dressed differently. They talked differently. They had different, you know, religious practices. Um, and for that reason, so the name is very important because, you know, you can, if you're a banker, the thing you most need is people having confidence to leave their money with you. The second was that the Safras were involved in blank, banking on a global scale, including his brothers and nephews and uh, distant cousins. And he said, you know, in the world, they don't distinguish between one Safra and the other. We're all sort of the same in that regard. And that's another reason you have to really keep um, the name. And the third was really, you know, he was at a particular, and again, this goes back to in the Sephardic world, when you have children, the first son is always named after the father's father, second son after the mother's father. So there were Jacob Safras walking. His father was Jacob Safra, and there were many Jacob Safras walking around. Whenever he gave something, uh, a charitable donation in his lifetime, it was in the name of his father and his mother. So there's, you know, Beit Yaakov, Ohel Yaakov, Kol Yaakov. His mother was named Esther Safra. So he viewed what he was doing not just on earth as a philanthropist, but as a banker was a continuation and representation of what his father had done and what his grandparents had done and what further generations of Safras would do in the future. And for that reason, um, he had a, the, the importance he attached to reputation was I think much greater than it would have been for other people. And you started to talk about his philanthropy. So that's why, again, I just want to repeat it because I think it's just so beautiful that he didn't ask for his personal compensation, but asked for it to be given to charity. Um, right. And he's known for his philanthropy. I mean, that's like you said, there are places around the world in the name of his parents and now in his name as well. Um, so, and he also had a special place in his heart for those Jews that remained in Lebanon and those in Syria and can you tell us a little bit about the story of his relationship with their, with the communities there, and especially in 1992, helping them escape? Sure. So, I mean, the interesting thing about the communities in Aleppo and Beirut were organized. There was a formal community council that had a president and a secretary. There were formal organizations. You know, Malbiche Alumin was for providing people with clothes. There were organizations to educate people, to provide food, to provide dowries to poor women. Um, and when the communities fractured and people had to leave, those institutions essentially disappeared. And he basically took it upon himself in the diaspora to be a one-man person, uh, a one-man institution. And so the documents, um, you know, even in the, in the 40s and the 50s, he saw a connection between business success and giving money to charities. And when I say charities, I mean Jewish charities. He was sending money to the tomb of Baal Hanes in Tiberias in the 50s to renovate rooms you know, for his father. He was supporting orphanages in Israel. Um, 
The Milan Sephardic Synagogue needed new prayer books. They would give them money. Uh, the synagogue on Rhodes, which, you know, the island uh, in the Mediterranean, whose community had been decimated by the Holocaust. I found every year he would send $500 so they could have a chazam come to do the high holidays. Uh, he was almost single-handedly keeping the remaining, you know, several thousand Jews remained in Aleppo and Damascus and in Beirut, keeping them afloat and sending individuals money to help get out and sending uh, money to the synagogues and yeshiva so they could keep having classes. I found a very poignant letter in French in 1978 that was signed, Le Rabbin d'Alep, the rabbis of Aleppo, and there were still eight or nine left. And it was uh, talking about how Yom Tov Yadid, who was the chief rabbi of Aleppo, was in poor health and he was suffering financially. Could he help? And you see there's a marker, his personal assistant wrote $7,500. This was like part of the rhythm of his life and it happened sort of on the daily. And I want to say in the, certainly the beginnings, almost exclusively to Sephardic organizations. And they were building the first Sephardic, uh, the first synagogue in Spain since the Inquisition in the 70s. They went to Edna Safra, it was called Beit Yaakov. If there were 50 Egyptian Jews in Brooklyn who were trying to start a synagogue in the 60s and needed someone to guarantee a mortgage, they went to Edmund Safran. And all of this is um, documented. The particular, I think, his sort of masterstroke was in 92, 93, there's the Gulf War. We kick Assad, I mean, we kick uh, Hussein out of Kuwait. Assad in Syria was on the side of the coalition partners. And there was this brief moment where Things were starting to open up. He was maybe going to talk to Israel. Assad was looking for financial aid from the West and uh, they sort of imposed upon him to say, why don't you let the remaining 4,000 Jews in, in Syria, mostly in Damascus, why don't you let them go? And he said, okay, but look, I don't want to give people the message that you can just leave Syria. They all have to buy round-trip plane tickets. And someone called Edmund Safran on the spot he bought them 4,000 round-trip plane tickets so they could leave. Uh, you know, in theory, there should be institute. you know, for Soviet Jews and people coming from other areas, there were institutions mm-hmm. that did that work, that lobbied, that funded resettlement. For this community, there was, not to say that other people didn't help, of course they did, and there were organizations, but that's who you went to. And you mentioned also that he started off in the Sephardi community, um, but then he branched out a bit. <laughs> um, well, I would say he started off like exclusively in the Syrian and Lebanese right. <laughs> community and branched out. And I think the, you know, in the, in the 1970s, Harvard starts asking him for money. He doesn't have his own kids to worry about getting into school, but you know, various nephews and associates wanted to send their kids to Harvard Business School or wherever. So he agrees to give money, but he says, I will endow a chair in Jewish history, but it has to be a chair in Sephardic Jewish history. And that was the first chair in Sephardic Jewish history in the US. And if you talk to people in that discipline, they will say that essentially, you know, Harvard creating that, um, that was a marker for uh, the creation of a discipline that hadn't existed uh, heretofore. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, I was also going a little bit differently as uh, my late mother actually prayed at the Safra Synagogue in Modine, which was completely Ashkenazi. Right. <laughs> so that, but yes, branched beyond as well. Um, and then if you're talking about Israel, I find it fascinating that he was in the land of Israel, not even the state of Israel in 1947, and then didn't go back with all of his travels that you talk about between his different homes. And you think about people with 
it's a basic to have a home in Israel if you have homes around the world. And, and uh, he didn't go back until 1980. I just- Yeah, yeah this is very that. interesting. So you think about it, like so many people in the countries adjacent to Israel, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, you know, just moved there in 48 or the 50s. It was, that would be the most convenient thing to do. Mm -hmm. So close. Um, he went to Brazil, which is in a, you know, in a two different hemispheres, in the southern hemisphere, and, and the, I mean, you know, it's way the hell over there. Um, and he had very little to do with Israel for a few reasons. One, you know, Israel was a poor socialist country. There was no sort of banking activity to be done there. Um, he was, again, he would fund charitable organizations in Israel in the 50s and the 60s, but through a proxy. Because in Brazil, remember, he still owned a bank in Lebanon. He did business with Kuwaitis, with Saudi Arabians. In Brazil, there was a big Lebanese non-Jewish community that he was doing business with. And in the 50s and the 60s, if you did business with Israel, you would be put on blacklists by Saudi Arabia, by Lebanon. So he was concerned about his commercial interests. Later, he was also concerned about the remaining communities in Lebanon and Syria and his you know, his bank there, which was helping to support the Beirut Jewish community, that if he was too publicly identified with Israel, they would take revenge by persecuting people in Beirut or Syria. Um, and so there are letters in the 60s where say basically saying, you know, he, he, he would not send money directly to Balanes, he would send it through somebody in New York, or that he, he couldn't really correspond directly with people in Israel because they didn't want to get on a blacklist. And this chart starts to change as the populations in, in Lebanon and Syria dwindle. Um, in the 70s, he is meeting in with Israeli government officials in Switzerland and contributing to post-Yom Kippur appeals. Um, his rabbi from Beirut, Yaakov Atiyah, uh, leaves Beirut in the 70s, washes up in Bat Yam, south of Tel Aviv. And there's all this correspondence from Edmund with uh, his rabbi about building a new synagogue in Bat Yam, which he you know, single-handedly financed to the point and letters about, should we have air conditioning? Should we not? Are you spending too much? And it's for the consecration of that synagogue that he first shows up to Israel in 1980, 1981. Over the next many years, he's in Israel all the time for bar mitzvahs. His brother is buried there. In 1991, the Safras buy an Israeli bank, Phoebe, first international bank of Israel. He's friends with, you know, the Rabins and the Perez's and Teddy Kalik. Um, and they are, you know, supporting hospitals in Israel and synagogues and, uh, you know, Porat Yosef, which is the big Sephardic um, yeshiva in the old city overlooking the Kotel. Uh, again, the 70s, he gave a lot of money, and he said, there's a big sign that says, you know, Beit Yaakov Safra, the Midrash Beit Yaakov Safra after his father. And if you go there today, right next to it, it also says Edmund Safra II, which is, you know, foundation has do donated in the years um, since he died. So today, the Safra name, the, the, the footprint in Israel is immense at the Israel Museum, in Tel Aviv University, uh, hospitals. But during his lifetime, it was, especially in the early years of his career, it was uh, much more muted. You had a wonderful book launch at the his wing or the wing dedicated to him at, at the um, Israel Museum. Uh, that was a wonderful thing. So let's talk a little bit about um, the takeaway. You, you know, when you read a biography or you hear a eulogy, it 
usually try to walk away with something. And I love the fact in the book, you talk about, he gets old, he doesn't get older, sorry. He gets uh, sick at his older age. He doesn't get to, unfortunately, doesn't get to live to a very old age in our time. Um, And he's getting sick and Lily decides that she's going to throw him a 65th birthday party. And she says, may our six wonderful grandchildren achieve in their lives the values and ideals that you, a deeply religious man, have bequeathed upon all of us to be grateful for what we have, to be content with what we are, and above all, to walk humbly mindful of the spiritual wisdom of Judaism. To me, that's just such a powerful takeaway. What changed I'm sure that for you, something changed in the way you see the world or the way you see maybe your community or something. What, what did you, what's your takeaway from his life from writing this biography? I would say a few things. First of all, you know, whenever you write business books, there's supposed to be lessons and the lessons are also supposed to be like how you too can make a fortune or what are the, you know, the lessons we learned from this. And the second thing from a biography is people ask his legacy, like, what was their legacy? What lasting impact did they have? I think with Edmund Safra, it's a little, the legacy is a little complicated. I'll start with the legacy. It's a little complicated because for him, you know, this story is a, would be a classic immigrant success story. A guy comes, he has to leave his country where there's strife. He comes to Brazil, he comes to America, he starts businesses, he reaches the highest level of society. Uh, He sells his two banks for $10 billion in cash in 1999. He walks away with $3 billion of cash of his own. Like that's, you know, in an American business success story, that's it. Like, how do you do better than that? And for him, it was a moment of sadness. His friend comes from Geneva. She says, Mabruk, which is congratulations in Arabic. And he said uh, in French, j'ai vendu mes enfants. I've sold my children. I've sold my babies. Like for him, this is supposed to be a family business that was going to go on for hundreds of years. And the fact that it didn't and couldn't was to him a sort of failure, even though he had this enormous um, success. And the reason was, you know, he didn't have his own biological children. He didn't really want to name an outsider to be CEO. He had Parkinson's and it was really getting a lot worse. So he couldn't run this empire. He couldn't figure out an arrangement with his brothers to sort of carry on or pull their assets. And so for him, he wouldn't say he was a failure, but he, you know, there was an element of tragedy that that his life had ended up, his business life had ended up this way, which um, you know is something because it tells you that the, the making of money, which is important, because it enables you to do things and to live, and which is a fuels ambition. To him, that was like a given. It was a given to him that he would make a lot of money. The question is, what you were going to do with it, and how this was going to continue beyond your lifetime. Um, so that's one takeaway. And then, so the, you know, there is no operating business. There is no sort of Edmund Safford bank where people still work. He sold it for cash and that was the end of it. Um, he didn't have his own children, so they're not carrying it on. And obviously the foundation he left behind, which his wife, Lily Safford ran for 23 years until she died in August, which has put his name on synagogue. It has three areas that it focuses on from Jewish life, education, and healthcare research specifically, um, you know, Parkinson's and neurological research. So I've gotten back from, you know, I was in England, France, Israel, and New York uh, doing sort of book events. And the people, you know, in France, people came up to me from the Pasteur Institute, whose work um, the foundation has been supporting for 20 years, like basic research into neurological issues. I have been to 
and Safra synagogues and community centers where Jewish life is happening. So, um, and the, you know, I think that the best thing I did in Israel, uh, there's a group called the Israel Sephardic Education Foundation, ISEF, which he basically started in 1977. I told them, you know, only 2% of Sephardic kids in Israel go to college. They're in development towns, they're getting poor educations. They're certainly capable of going to college. We should do something on the spot. He gave a quarter of a million dollars to this day. The foundation is one of the biggest supporters of that organization. So I gave a talk at Tel Aviv University to the 150 young people who are graduate students, medical students, PhD candidates who are ISEF fellows this year. And when you look around that room, and it was every, every hue of Israeli, you know, kids whose parents came from Ethiopia and Syria and Morocco and Druze and Arabs and people from the Ukraine. This is the sort of the miracle that modern Israel is. The, the fortune that he amassed in his lifetime is helping these people you know, live up to their potential. And so I, I see that as more than anything as you know, his particular legacy. Um, as far as like the business lessons, you know, this book is both a, a Jewish book and a business book. Um, the business lessons were that he, you know, there's a view in banking that you have to like borrow a lot of money and lend a lot of money often recklessly to be successful. And we know from the various convulsions that our country has gone through, the dot-com bubble, great financial crisis, crypto stuff, that people are very reckless because they think that's how you have to take a lot of risk in order to make money. And his mode of banking was like exactly the opposite. That if you find ways to minimize risk and find areas that other people are not, don't think are worthy of doing, and you conduct yourself in a certain way, you can actually be very profitable. So that is the sort of you know business lesson I would take away from it. I think also the hands-on approach is something that's very unique. I mean, you mentioned even in philanthropy that to the point of what air conditioners are they going to install in the synagogue? And we talked about it in his banks as well, that he knew the names of all the people there and had a relationship. Um, so I just think that's also something. And I think that's on his gravestone, um, Rabbi Yaakov Atia of Aleppo that you've met and Beirut that you've mentioned a few times. Um, he kind of epitomized his life when he put the on it on the gravestone the quote praise the righteous man for he is good for the fruit of their deeds they shall eat and that's from Isaiah 3 uh, 310 and also the pious man lives by his faith from Habakkuk the family didn't decide it was just the rabbi that decided to put that on or so and I of course, at, at his funeral there were four rabbis the chief rabbi of france chief rabbi of geneva who was himself i think from romania rabbi from france rabbi sitruk the chief uh, sephardic rabbi of israel and a local chabad rabbi and that speaks to you know anyway, he loved you know he loved rabbis he loved creating synagogues i found in the archives a, a letter from the lubavitcher rebbe by Schneerson in 1971, um, Edmund Safra had given two Sifre Torah to uh, Magin uh, David, which is a synagogue, the big, uh, one of the big Syrian synagogues in Brooklyn. So not one, but two synagogues, and it was a whole drosh by the Rebbe on you know, why giving two is a particular mitzvah and what the significance of that was. That's beautiful. Um, so let's 
in our new books network, we like to ask, what are you doing next? Let's get to you. We've talked a lot about uh, Edmund Zafra. What, what are you working on next? That's a good question. I'm still, you know, I'm still spending a lot of time uh, promoting this book and talking about it. I'm going to be, um, yeah, I I've a, still have a lot of events and a lot of audiences to take this to. And, and actually, you know, I think one of the amazing things is I could walk into a room in Brooklyn or at the Edmund Safford Synagogue in New York, and there will be 400 people, and most of them knew him personally, many were related to him, they know exactly who he is, and I could walk into a synagogue across town, and people would have absolutely no idea who he is at all, um, just because of, they're not familiar with the Sephardi world, he died 25 years ago, uh, doesn't necessarily register, so I, I, I think my sort of focus on the near term is still you know, there's a degree to which publishing the book is actually just the first step of trying to sort of get the word out and uh, encouraging people to engage and educate themselves. But I'm going to take a little while before I think about my next project. I think that is a project. I agree with you. Getting the word out there that there was this multi-dimensional person that we can learn so much from. And I think that's beautiful. Um, so just to repeat, we've been speaking with Daniel Gross about his book, A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Finance Empire, published by Radius Publishing in 2022. And like he's been saying, he's in speaking engagements around the world. I do encourage you to go listen to him. Um, it's wonderful to hear him in person as well. So we thank you for that. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you again at the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience and uh, at other venues. Uh, for those listening who want some other personal accounts about the Jewish Mosaic and greater Jewish experience, please listen to the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience podcast, Reclaiming Identity, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and on our website, Institute of Jewish Experience. Dan, it's really been a true pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you.